Good morning. You can hear me? We're good? Awesome. Well, it is a pleasure to be up here. It is by God's grace that I'm up here, and it's by God's grace that we're all here, amen? I want to thank the elders once again for allowing me this opportunity. Who would have thought that some kid from Baldwin Park would be up here in front of you in Santa Clarita, of all places? But here we are, praising the, praising the Lord. Hey, so I hope our By Design series has proven to be an encouragement to us all. We're highlighting the lives of godly men and women throughout the Old Testament so that we might learn what God, about God's design for biblical womanhood and manhood. These are not perfect men or women by any stretch of the imagination, but these are men that showcase what God expects from his men and women. From those who say that they follow him, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman, a biblical man, a biblical woman? The last two weeks we've been highlighting the women, right? In week one we saw Hannah, the faithfulness of Hannah. And then last week we saw the industrious Proverbs 31 woman, that every woman aspires to be that high calling who fears the Lord. And she's worthy to be praised, not because of her beauty, not because she has it all together, but because she fears the Lord. This morning, we're to shift our focus from biblical womanhood to biblical manhood. But before we get into our text, I want to make a few things clear, a couple things clear. First, ladies, please don't check out on me. The last two weeks, it's been on you, uh, but please don't check out on me because although I will be speaking specifically on manhood, this applies to you too, so don't check out. And second, I need to be very honest with you all. Just because I stand behind this pulpit does not make me the model man. Every man that stands behind this pulpit is carried here, amen? Every man that stands behind this pulpit is carried by the Lord, and that makes me no different today. I'm not coming up here so that you learn manhood from my example. That would be a disservice to you. That would not be fair to you. That would be bad. I'm not coming up here so that you could see how good I am at being a man, because I'm not. I fail at it every day. I'm learning how to be a man. I'm learning how to be a father to my daughter, Riley. I'm learning how to be a loving husband to my wife, Kara. I'm learning how to be a loving son to my parents. I'm learning how to be a loving friend. But that's every man here. And the thing that I love about our church is that we could do it together. We don't have to be alone. We don't play the Lone Ranger. That's not what Christ called us to do. He gave us a body of believers. And I'm grateful for you all. So I'm not here to discourage or to tear anybody down, but I hope we could walk away encouraged. I hope we could walk away from the end of this service encouraged. My hope is that we can walk away with a greater understanding of what it means to be a man according to God's word. I think it's very obvious that if we look around in our culture that we're confused as to what it means to be a man. Our culture is confused the, the definition of a man seems to change all the time. If I were to ask the older generation here, the more experienced saints, what it means to be a man, I'm sure the answer you give me would be different from the one the younger generation gives me. It seems to change all the time. We, we have differing ideas on what it means to be a man and what it ought to look like. 
Some of us might have been raised to believe that to be a man means you don't show emotion. It means that you don't cry. It means that you're not tender-hearted, but you're tough. You're reliable. You don't depend on anybody else because everybody depends on you. We don't show emotion. That's for women. We were taught to be self-reliant. But I want us to remember what Clea Elder Eric said a couple weeks ago. I, I can't call him just Eric. That's not, that's not right. So Clea is big brother in Tagalog, and Clea Eric is like a father to me too. Uh, I live with him, and he's showing me what manhood is. He's shown me that, and so out of respect, I have to call him Clea Elder. As we go through this series, he reminded us that we ought to pray for ourselves. There's going to be some things that, that are said behind this pulpit that might be different from what, you, from what you think about what a man should be, about what a, a woman should be. But that's okay. There's going to be things that challenge our thinking. But I pray that we find clarity. Clarity not from what the world says, but what God's word says. Clarity in God's word. So I'm not up here to tell you what I think a man should be. I'm up here to tell you what God says he should be. We need clarity. If we look to Hollywood and social media to define what it means for us to be a man, then we'll always be confused. We will always be confused. We cannot look for the world to define what only God can define. Only God can define womanhood. Only God can define manhood. Because in whose image are we created? We're created in the image of God, amen? Amen. And that means that God defines what womanhood is. That means that God defines what manhood is. So thank God for his word. You know, aren't you thankful as I was studying? I couldn't help but just be excited and thankful that, that God shows me what it means to be a man. God doesn't leave me and, say, and, and says, here's 10 steps, hopefully you follow them. Here's how you better yourself. No, he sent us his son. He gave us himself. He gave us himself. He shows us exactly what it means to be a man. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ that we find exactly what a man ought to be. He is the perfect demonstration. Amen? If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you now have the pleasure of representing him. You represent the greatest man that has ever and will ever walk on this earth. Friends, chew on that. You have the pleasure of representing God's son. Not yourself, God's son. We will never represent him fully on this side of glory, but we strive to, but we need help. The man that we're going to highlight today is one of the greatest men, not just in the Old Testament, but I believe in all of scripture, really. It's hard to, to be honest, it's hard to find a flaw on this guy. And I believe that he serves as a type of Christ. He serves as a foreshadowing. He, he behaves in a way that corresponds to Jesus' character. It might not get better than this guy. This man is Boaz, and we learn of him in the book of Ruth. Now, as we study about the character of Boaz, make sure that you don't just see him, but make sure that you see who he represents. Look past him. Everything that represents him 
is who we ought to be because he represents Christ. So please turn your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth. We don't meet Boaz until chapter 2, so to give us some context, let's read a portion of Ruth chapter 1. Church, you know I do this. If you're there, you've got to give me an amen. You there? All right, let's go. Ruth 1, 1 through 7. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, and there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Chapter 1 in the book of Ruth is filled, filled with tragedy. It begins with tragedy. It's really sad. It's really sad. As the chapter goes on, Orpah will return to Moab and her gods. But Ruth is a Proverbs 31 woman. I feel like I could do a two-for-one today. I could give you the profile of a biblical womanhood in, in Ruth and also in, as a man in Boaz. Ruth clings to Naomi. And these ladies are miserable. All they have is each other. Naomi is a Jewish woman who is embittered towards her God. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. This is the worst possible position for a Jewish woman to be in. Ruth is a Moabitess, a Gentile woman, a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel. Yet she's the one that shows kindness towards Naomi. You would think it'd be Naomi since she knows Yahweh, since she's from the land of God. But it's a Gentile woman that shows her kindness. She's loyal. Although these women are totally different, what they share in common is that they are widows and childless. And in a male-dominated society, this was the worst possible situation to be in if you're a woman. They have no present, no man to take care of them, and they have no future, no sons, no one to carry on this line. But our great God is sovereign. And you see God orchestrating this beautiful story, this beautiful story of redemption in the book of Ruth. And he provides in an amazing way for these women. So they go to Bethlehem. God has visited his people, and they go to Bethlehem. 
Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now let's get into chapter 2, where we meet Boaz. Ruth chapter 2, 1 through 4. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. In these first few verses, we get a glimpse of what kind of man Boaz is. And he gives us an example of what we ought to be, which leads us to our first point. Boaz is a worthy man. Boaz is a worthy man. If you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, this ought to be you. We are worthy men. I'm not a fan of the NASB's translation here. I know we got some NASB fans here. Uh, but I'm not a fan of the phrase in verse 1, a man of great wealth, because I, I think they get it wrong because Boaz's worthiness isn't found in his wealth. His wealth isn't what makes him a man. He is a landowner, so of course he would be wealthy, but that's not the point the author is trying to communicate. I like the ESV's translation, a, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, and I know Adam's going to love this. I hate to say it. The CSB has the best translation. I know, I know, I know. It translates it as he was a prominent man of noble character. Boaz is a prominent man of noble character. His worthiness is tied to his godly character. This is a man who knows how to take care of his business. He knows how to take care of his family. And he does it with godly character. There have been richer men than Boaz, for sure. There have been more wealthy men than Boaz, but not a lot of men have this man's character. One thing we have to remember is that the purchases we make, those aren't the things that make us men. Our resources, those don't define us as men. That's not what identifies us as men. Owning a home, that doesn't make you a man. Being able to grow an amazing beard. I look at Sergio. Ryan Curl has a great beard, by the way, too. But that's not what makes you a man. I have to remind myself that because I can't grow one. It's not what makes us men. It's not it. You could have all those things and more. You could have so many things at your disposal but do you have godly character? Single ladies, let me tell you something. Let me help you out. I'm here to talk to everybody. I told you. I told you. His good looks, that man that you have your eye on, his good looks won't last forever. I'm not going to look. It's not going to last forever. 
but find a man who has character, and that will remain. That remains. Character does not go away. Marry someone who loves God more than you. Marry someone who shows that to you. It's his godliness that remains. The world tries to teach us that to be a man, you, you, you have to be successful. And whatever that means, right? What does it mean to be successful? It, it means looking a certain way. It means having tons of money, having tons of women. The world points at celebrities. They point at a man like Tony Stark, and they say, oh, that's a man. Billionaire, philanthropist, whatever. Genius. That's someone who has it all together, right? That man doesn't have godly character, though. They say you gotta look at professional athletes. Look at the way they look. Look at their performance. Look at how well they do on the field. That's a man right there. I used to be a big nerd, or I still am. If, Windsor, you're laughing. <laughs> I'm really into Greek mythology. Growing up, I, I loved watching the movie Troy. And what I loved about Troy is the Greeks love presenting what man ought to look like, at least in their minds. And in Troy, we see the, the hero slash villain Achilles. And he's this man that has it all together. Men bow at him. Women running all over for him. His skills are unmatched. He beats everybody. If you want to win a battle, you call that man. That's not a man. This this is a man. Boaz is an outstanding man. He sticks out from the rest. And what I love about Boaz, he's just a regular guy. He's not a prophet. He's not a preacher. He didn't go to seminary. He's a regular dude. It's not like this is someone we can't be. It's not like I'm telling you and asking you to be like somebody who you can't aspire to. He's a regular guy, and he's a godly man. And notice his context. When did these events in the book of Ruth take place? Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. It came about in the days when the judges governed. The days of the judges were some of the darkest days in all of Israel. The phrase that you see over and over again throughout the book is, there was no king in Israel at that time. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Is that really that different from today? I don't think it's that different. That's our world. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. That phrase speaks of how unruly the people were. They were rebellious. The sins that the men of Israel committed in those days were comparable to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was gross. If you need a reminder of how wicked mankind is, I suggest you read the book of Judges. If you want to see depravity, read the book of Judges. You want to talk about toxic masculinity? Read the book of Judges. And what I love about Ruth chapter 2 is if you start reading your Bible in Judges, you get to Ruth and you see it's terrible. It's horrible. When will there be a man that steps up? When will there be a knight in shining armor? 
And then you get to Ruth chapter 1, and we see that knight in shining armor. It's Boaz. Finally, a man that sticks out from the rest. He's not a man who takes advantage of, of, of the women in his time. But he respects and honors all people. The men in those days were abusive. They would use their physical strength for their selfish gain. But Boaz sticks out not because of how strong he is physically, but he sticks out because he's strong spiritually. Boaz means strength. This is a strong man. Worthy men don't do what's right in their own eyes. That's not what we do, men. We don't do what's right in our own eyes. We do what's right in God's eyes. Even when every man around us doesn't. Even when they do what's right in their own eyes. And what motivated Boaz, he feared the Lord. It was his fear of the Lord that allowed him to behave this way. He lived in a time where the fear of the Lord was absent from those around him. This only took place 3,000 years ago. Not that different from today, though. And I love verse 4. Look at it with me. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now you're probably thinking, well, what's the big deal, Daniel? He's just saying good morning. He's just being polite. No, that's, that's not what he's doing. What's the first word that comes out of this man's mouth? Yahweh be with you. The first thing this man says is Yahweh. The first thing he does is he identifies who his God is. His speech shows that he loves God. Wouldn't it be great if you had a boss like this? You guys laugh because you know. Can you imagine your boss saying this to you? Come here to the office, Yahweh be with you. Mike, Yahweh be with you. I can imagine Boaz going one by one to each of his workers, Yahweh be with you. Yahweh be with you. Because he cares. This is a caring man. He doesn't just offer them advice, hey, hope you have a nice day. Hey, take it easy, will you? No. Yahweh be with you. The God of peace be with you. The God of Israel, the God that comforts us be with you. Boaz in public makes it very obvious who his God is. This is an encouraging man too. Biblical men encourage each other. Men, when was the last time you encouraged your brother? And I hope it, it isn't something that we do only when we do communion, only when we're asked to do it, but it's something that we constantly do. Men, we need each other. We need encouragement. Boaz makes it known who his God is through his speech and conduct. He makes Yahweh's name known in the workplace. And the thing is, he knows people are watching him. He's the boss. He knows he has workers under him that are constantly watching. His desire isn't just for the blessing of God in his life, but he wants the blessing of God in the lives of those around him and those he interacts with. A couple of weeks ago, we dedicated my daughter Riley, and that was very sweet. Thank you, Oak Hill. 
because you joined with us in dedicating our daughter, and I thank you for that. Kara and I thank you for that. Riley's only four months, but man, she's crazy. <laughs> and she's so intelligent, too. The whole morning today, I didn't have this in my notes, but praise the Lord, it's going to work out. <laughs> as I was preparing it and I was, as I was eating, Kara's trying to feed Riley, and she's just watching me. I'm in the kitchen. Kara's feeding her in the living room, and she's just like, bottle. It's like, what do you want? Like, dude, leave me alone. Amen. She's starting to laugh and roll over. She's constantly learning. But not only that, she's constantly watching. She's constantly watching. Doesn't matter what we're doing. She will look for us. She searches us. Children are always watching. Men, God has called us to lead. And those under our care will watch us. Not saying a woman can't lead, but in the household, the man leads. That's our duty. Fathers, let me ask you this. Boaz made it very obvious who his God is. Fathers, is it obvious to your children that you love God? Is it obvious to your children that you cherish Christ? And I don't want to just ask the fathers, but men. Is it obvious to those under your care that you love God? Is your love for him obvious to your coworkers? Is it obvious in your communities? Do you seek to make him known to those you interact with? And what does your speech say about your view of God? Be mindful of the things you say. Be mindful of how you conduct yourself. We represent someone better than ourselves. God has called men to be the leaders in the home. You might not be the pastor here, but if you're a man, you will be the pastor of your household. You are the pastor of your household, and God holds you responsible. Remember in Genesis 3, Eve, man, they fall. And it was Eve that, that grabbed the fruit, correct? It was Eve that did it. But the text makes it very clear who was with her. And it was man. Now, I don't know about you. If I see my wife speaking to a snake, I will crush that snake. I'm not kidding. I will crush that snake. But that's not what Adam did. He was passive. He wasn't loving his wife. He wasn't loving God. And God says, he comes down and he says, man, where are you? God knew where he was, but the fact that he had to ask shows something happened. You're responsible for this gap. Worthy men love God and seek to make him known. We're responsible. Let's go to our next point. Boaz is a kind man. 
Boaz is a kind man. After a long journey, Ruth and Naomi make it to Bethlehem, but they need sustenance. They need food. It's a long journey, and they're getting hungry. And Ruth, being the courageous woman she is, offers to glean so that she and Naomi can eat. If Ruth didn't glean, then the only thing she might be able to do to provide sustenance is to sell herself. Moabite women were known for prostitution. But this woman sticks out. This is a Proverbs 31 woman. She works. She doesn't want that for herself. She knows who she represents. She knows who she has to take care of, Naomi. This is a strong woman. And if Boaz kicks her out of this field, then that might be what Ruth is left to do, to sell herself just so that she can eat. Instead, she gleans in the field of a kind man. To glean is to get down and, uh, and pick up the grain, or in Ruth's case, the barley that was left behind by the reapers. And gleaning is hard work. It takes, you so, it, it takes so much time to be able to, to grab enough grain or barley to satisfy yourself. It's going to be hard. It's gonna, and it's hot. This is a strong woman, though. Ruth is hoping that some landowner will show kindness to her. And by God's providence, she ends up in Boaz's field, the, the land, the field of a kind man. One of the reasons the book of Ruth is so beautiful is because it, it, it showcases the kindness of God. Throughout the book, it showcases the kindness of God. It's all about God's hesed. Hesed, it's all about hesed. Hesed is, is one of those words that's very difficult for us to translate into English. There really isn't an English equivalent for it. It's a strong relational term, though. Hesed is a quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. That's a mouthful, I know. But it's unfailing love. It's loving the way God loves. It's unmerited kindness that seeks the best for one who is undeserving. Boaz demonstrates hesed to Ruth. And it's not like Ruth could ever repay him. What does she bring? Ruth, Boaz will let, her, will let her glean, and then what? She'll pay him back? She can't pay this man back. And the thing about Boaz, he doesn't expect it. He gives. That's what we need to understand, man. Boys take, men give. Boys take, men give. There's no advantage in helping Ruth. And I can imagine as, as Ruth is gleaning, remember who she is. Is she, a, is she a Jew? No. She's a Moabite woman. She's a stranger. She's a foreigner. She's an outcast. I can imagine as she's gleaning the harassments that are coming her way. Her being pushed aside. Her being assaulted even. She's a foreigner that doesn't belong. But look at how, Ruth, how Boaz speaks to this vulnerable woman in verses 8 to 10. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, 
but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz doesn't act cruel towards her. He doesn't kick her out of his field just because she's a foreigner. She show, he shows kindness. Any other man might have abused Ruth. This man might have harassed her, raped her. She was from a, a hated people group. Boaz knows about hated people groups too, seeing as how his mother is Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho. You think Boaz might know a thing or two about Gentiles and about having respect for women? About how even it doesn't take a Jew to be a godly woman, but he sees godliness in several women from several nations. Boaz understands the kindness of God and that allows him to be kind to Ruth. He tells her to stay and he's concerned with her safety. He tells the young man uh, that they are not to touch her because even though she is a foreigner, she is created in the image of God and that gives her dignity. Boaz knew that. Regardless of, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, we are all created in the image of God and we are welcome to the same family. That's beautiful. That one day, when we're, when we're in the kingdom and we're worshiping the lamb, that person standing next to you might not look like you. That person standing next to you might not speak the same language as you, but he, he or she has the same God as you. That is beautiful, is it not? That is beautiful. That is, a, that is the work of our great artist. God is an artist. Ruth's response, look at it with me again. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth's response is what our response should be to Christ. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a sinner? That is what we, that is how we respond to Christ, is it not? That we fall on our faces because we have been shown overwhelming kindness. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Friends, we don't deserve a simple glance from God. It is grace if he so much as glances at us. He, he not only glances at us, but he looks at our filth. He looks at our filth and invites us to himself. Boaz demonstrates that sort of kindness to Ruth. Boaz knows how to show kindness the way God does because he knows the law. One of the reasons Boaz is such a great leader and model for biblical manhood is because he submits to the word of God. Men, if you want to be a leader then you need to learn to submit to the word of God. 
The best leaders are the ones who submit to God. I'm so thankful for our leadership at our church. I've sat in several of those elder meetings, and they're not perfect. The men that lead us aren't perfect, but they submit to the word of God. We see that every week. We see that every day through discipleship and how they care for us. These are men that submit to the word of God. It isn't because they're so talented as to why they're such great leaders. It isn't because they have it all together. They don't. We don't. But it's because we submit to the word of God. That's why. And the word of God just flows out of Boaz. How do I know that? Because he organizes his business around the Mosaic law. If you're a landowner in Israel, God commanded you through the Mosaic law to show kindness to the foreigner, to the orphan and the widow by leaving a margin in your field. You weren't supposed to capitalize on the whole field. You were supposed to leave a margin for the underprivileged. And that's what Boaz did. You left money on the table so that the underprivileged would be given the dignity of work. These aren't handouts. They are given the dignity of work. They work from themselves. That's what a godly man does. He provides. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what God says in his law regarding landowners. Leviticus 19, 9-10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. Deuteronomy 24, 19 and 20. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the foreigner, for the orphan and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. Even though that was the law, that didn't mean everybody followed it. And remember, there was a famine. A famine for 10 years, and this is the first good crop. If you're a landowner, you're not, you're not looking to show kindness right now. You're not looking to share. Landowners back then would do whatever it takes to make sure you didn't take too much of their property. Especially now, the demand for barley increased, and so the opportunity to glean decreased. Ruth is incredibly vulnerable right now. But there is one kind landowner that invites her in. That's what biblical men do. We show kindness. We display it. Kindness is the indicator of a man that submits to God's word. Men, do you have eyes to see the poor and needy in your neighborhoods? Or do they remain invisible? Who are the underprivileged in your life? Who are those that need to be shown kindness? 
God has commanded you to show kindness to them. Boaz represents so much of Christ's character, does he not? He goes above and beyond for Ruth. Look at verse 14 with me. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here. Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Notice that Boaz didn't have one of his workers serve her, but who was it that served her? Boaz did. Boaz being the, ba- the boss that everybody looked up to, that everybody respected, humbled himself to serve a Gentile woman. He invited her into his house and said, come here, eat. Goodness upon you. Let me show you kindness. I know I could have somebody do this for you, but I'm going to do it. Boaz is a humble man. This is what a man does. We are to be humble. We lower ourselves for the sake of others. Just as Christ lowered himself for those that were undeserving and underprivileged, we lower ourselves. You know, one of my my favorite moments, one of my favorite moments in all of Jesus' ministry occurs during Passion Week. In Luke 22, you don't have to turn there, in Luke 22, during the Last Supper, we see the disciples debating, and they're always debating, and we mock them, right? We say, oh, Peter's so stupid. <laughs> oh, man, here, there he goes again, loud mouth. I love Peter because he shows courage, too, though. But here they go again, arguing as children talking about who's going to be the greatest among them. Well, I deserve to be the greatest among you because I, I mean, I was there first. I was at the Mount of Transfiguration. I can imagine Peter saying something like that, John, James. Apparently, they each had a case to be made as to why they should be the greatest. But when Jesus hears this, he puts an end to it. You want to be great? Are you sure you want to be great? Do you know what that entails? He puts an end to it and he shows them what greatness is. Jesus says in Luke 22, 27, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? I don't have to ask you who was the greatest there. We know it's Jesus. But how does he show it? By serving. God took on flesh and he didn't come down as a king looking from his tower, looking down at men and saying, oh, that's so sad. But he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And not only that, but he took the form of the lowest kind of man. If our definition of greatness is what the world's definition is, then Jesus isn't great. Jesus flips that, though. Later on that night, 
to really show his disciples what greatness entails, we see in John 13, Jesus strips down. And he wraps a towel around his waist, just like any slave in those days would. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet. You want to see greatness? This is greatness. This is what a man does. The maker of heaven and earth came down to take the form of the lowest kind of man and stripped himself, got down on his knees and started washing his disciples' disgusting feet. He could have easily said, this is what you ought to be doing for me. And he would have rightly had done so. He is God after all. But yet being God, he humbled himself. That's what a man does. True manhood is displayed when we freely and selflessly sacrifice for the unworthy. Do you only sacrifice when you know you're getting something in return? Do you give up your time because you know it's, it's, it's going to be a good time for you? The greatest display of God's kindness was on the cross where his son died for sinners. I need, to, I need you to say Amen. Whether you're married or single, if you're not serving your neighbors selflessly and sacrificially, you're not fully walking in biblical manhood. Boys say, I'm responsible for myself. Men say, I'm responsible for my neighbors. Boaz is a kind man. This brings us to our last point. Boaz is a man of integrity. Boaz is a man of integrity. Towards the end of chapter 2, Ruth tells Naomi of this man that, that showed kindness to her. Once Ruth tells her that it's Boaz, Naomi jumps up. She goes crazy. She's excited. She jumps up and prays for he, this man, is their kinsman redeemer. The role of a kinsman redeemer is found in Leviticus 25. And what a kinsman redeemer would do is, in the case of an Israelite man's death, in which he fails to leave behind a son, the brother of the deceased man is commanded to take his widow as wife and both redeem the land and provide a son to carry on the deceased father's name. Boaz, from what Naomi says, is up next. Naomi is hopeful that the line of Elimelech will continue through Boaz's seed. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 2 to 7. Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, 
and did according to all her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Ruth, once again, finds herself in a very, very vulnerable position. It's late at night, and she's at the threshing floor with Boaz alone. The threshing floor had a reputation for being a, a place where prostitutes would lure a man. But that's not Ruth's intention. Let's not get it twisted. But if Boaz was to take advantage of this woman, you think anybody would believe her? This is a Moabite woman in Israel. Not at all. No one would believe her. Boaz could have been, well, if you need a favor, then I'm going to need a favor from you. No one in Israel is going to believe a Moabite woman, especially if she's accusing a prominent man like Boaz. But Boaz, being the man of integrity that he is, doesn't compromise. Godly, biblical men don't compromise. We are steadfast. Boaz had all the power in that moment, but he has self-control. He's the same man during the day as he is at night. He's the same man in public as he is in private. Even when he knows, even when we know he, we could get away with something, we're the same man. He protects her dignity. He even tells her to go out before anybody can see her so that nobody could accuse her of anything. Men, we need to be men of integrity. If we say we're gonna do something, we follow through. Nobody should question your word because they see your character, they see your life. You shouldn't question whether I'll be there or not if I told you I was gonna be there because I'm a man of my word. That's what we are to be. Nobody should question your character. Biblical men are men of uncompromising character. That's what Boaz is. In verse 9, Ruth proposes to Boaz. As much as Boaz wanted to marry and redeem Ruth, he knows he can't because there's somebody ahead of him. But he still wanted to marry Ruth. So instead of going behind his relative's back, he does it the right way. Boaz could have said, yeah, let's get married. I'm the boss. What's anybody going to say? But he loves the word of God. This is a man that loves God's law. He does it the right way. He steps to his relative, and he tells the man what's going on. And through the providence of God, the closer relative declines. Boaz redeems the land and marries Ruth. He redeemed her the right way. His fear of God wouldn't let him compromise. This is the kind of man we ought to emulate. A worthy man, a kind man, and a man of integrity. Men, that's who you're called to be. Worthy men, kind men, men of integrity. 
We have three new fathers this year, right? Myself, Nate, and Kiefer. All three having baby girls. We have like five girls this year. It's amazing. What's in the water in this place? But number two. We need to show our daughters what it means to be a man. We need to show our daughters what they ought to expect from what a, how a man ought to protect her, care for her, and love her. You know, I love it that, that Riley watches me because she could watch the way I treat Kara. She could watch the, the way I treat my wife. And she knows what to expect because she's not going to get anything less. My daughter will not get anything less than that. Fathers, that's the way we ought to think. Because we know what it means to love, and we know what it means to be kind. Boaz foreshadows Jesus Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer who redeems a bride for himself, the church. Even though there's so much we can learn from Boaz, there's so much more that I could have unpacked, but... This is a godly man. We could talk about him for days. But remember who he represents. He represents Christ, an even greater man, our Lord, our better Adam. Jesus is not Adam. He doesn't look at his bride and, and, and say, well, that's okay. And he doesn't cast blame either. When God approached Adam, he looked at Adam and said, what have you done? Well, it was the woman you gave me, God. You didn't have to do that. But our better Adam takes our blame. He doesn't say, he doesn't look at his father and say, I mean, they deserve it, don't they? No, but he says, give it to me. I'll be the man. And that's our God. Amen. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us fatherless. Thank you that you don't leave us without a standard of what a man ought to be. Thank you that you don't leave us guessing. But through your word, you show us time and time again what it means to be a man. What it means to be a woman that seeks to honor and glorify you. Thank you for the men here. Thank you for the women here that I could glean from these older men. I could glean from the older women as well. Thank you, Lord, for providing this church. Thank you, Lord, for providing us your word. And thank you for sending us Jesus, our King, our Savior, our man, our God. Thank you, and in his name we pray, amen.